Good morning, everyone. If you're new with us today, my name is David Cassidy. I'm the lead pastor here at Spanish River Church. You've uh, come on a great Sunday. We're beginning, as Dana mentioned, this new series, One Heart, One Mission. And the, the reason that we're doing that together is to dig into the where we're going and how we're doing that and why we would do it to begin with. It's a deep dive on the mission, the vision, the values that this church has. It's necessary that we do that from time to time so that we understand where the Lord's directing us and taking us. And we can all say in our hearts, amen to that. This will lead towards a commitment Sunday, November 21st, where we're going to have a giant on-campus party. And we're all going to be committing together to these things which we are trying to state as clearly and emphatically as possible over these next several Sundays. It's important for you to know where you're going. Um, I was getting on a flight for Austin from Nashville uh, a few years ago. And, and uh, as you know, when the um, people who are uh, the stewards of that flight are, are getting everybody ready, they'll go over all the safety features of the aircraft and all of the necessary precautions, how to buckle seatbelts and so on. And um, then they'll tell you where you're going, just as a reminder. Now, I was um, in Nashville going to Austin, but the, 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 the person at front said, we'd like to welcome you on board today's flight, which is um, from Nashville to Boston. And a, a, a murmur rippled through all the passengers on the plane. Some people actually started getting out phones to make sure they were actually on the correct flight. And then, and then after a little bit of laughter, of course, she came back on and she said, sorry, not Austin, Boston. And then everybody breathed a sigh of relief. I'm on the right flight. I know where I'm going. This is the place for me. And so when you talk about a church's mission and what it's here to do, it's critical for us to know that we're not just gathering on Sunday and going through the motions, that worship together, whether it's on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning, is not a, a gerbil wheel where there's a whole lot of activity but nobody ever goes anywhere. But we understand that God has a mission with his people, that we are privileged, each and every one of us who call ourselves Christians, to be part of that and to enter into it deeply and wholeheartedly. Let's talk about what this isn't. This series is not a deep dive on what we believe theologically. It's not a deep dive into doctrine. That's absolutely vital, and it's at the foundation of certainly who we are as believers, and that's a necessary series to take as well. But that's not what this particular series is about. It's also not a new vision, something new and different from anything that's ever been said before. Um, it is, in fact, a restatement of everything that this church has been about since day one. And I've met people here in the course of my conversations, and even this morning, who have been here since the very beginning, over 50 years ago. In fact, there was a lot of grace going on in here this morning because, because some of you as you all gathered together, discovered this morning that somebody was sitting in your seat that you've been sitting in for 20 years. And what I ran into were people who've been sitting in the same seat for 20 years, giving it up to people who've been here in the church for 50 years. So there you go. There's grace towards all. But that's not what we're doing. We're not saying something new, but we are going to use some new language to describe what it is that God has called us to do. And so we will do that because the language has to stay current with what we're doing. And a good way for us to think about how to do that is to start off with the scriptures in Ezekiel 47 and in 1 Peter 
1 and 2. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Ezekiel 47. I want to read a text to you here, Ezekiel 47. And as we go to it, I want to just tell you a little bit about what's happening here. Ezekiel is an exile prophet. The people of Israel um, have seen their city, Jerusalem, their capital city destroyed, the temple destroyed by Babylonian forces, and they have been deported. They're now in Babylon, and Ezekiel, this great prophet, is with them in their exile. Now, they've seen the temple destroyed. They've seen their city destroyed. They've seen their homes destroyed. It would be easy for those people to lose hope. But Ezekiel has a vision. He has a vision, you know, famously of dry bones being brought together and rising from the dead. He has a vision here in chapter 47 of a restored temple of a temple that is rebuilt, and it's greater, it's more glorious than anything they'd ever seen before. And there's something beautiful and unique about this temple. It has a river that flows out of it. And it starts, it doesn't start big and massive, this tremendous cataract bursting forth over the scene. It's just a little trickle. But this trickle soon becomes a fantastic river that the prophet is is, is invited by an angel to step out into. And so he steps into the river, ankle deep, then he comes out knee deep, then hip deep, and then it becomes so deep, he says, that his feet can't touch the bottom, and he's caught in the current of what God is doing. And here's what he says God is doing. God, through this river that flows from the temple of God, is doing something amazing. Verse 9, wherever the river goes... Every living creature that swarms will live. There will be many fish. This water goes there. And the waters of the sea become fresh. It has the power to turn salt water into fresh water. And look at this. Everything will live where the river goes. Would you say that with me? Everything will live where the river goes. You know, one way to study history is just to look at the rise of civilizations around great rivers, whether it's the Tigris and Euphrates or the Indus River Valley or the Amazon or the Mississippi. You can look at history and see how, whether it's the Danube or the Seine or the Thames, great civilizations have arisen, whether it's, it's over the Hudson or, or the Ohio or the Spanish River. Great civilizations have emerged. Now, I went looking for the Spanish River, you know. I wanted to get my toes in. Well, of course, as you know, it's been sort of redirected into what is now the Intracoastal, but the, the, the ancient riverbed, it was named the Old Spanish River by the settlers who came to this area. That riverbed, that's still there over in the Spanish River Park. But we can't see where that river is, but in a certain way, while Ezekiel sees a river, the people of Israel they couldn't see what he saw. And in fact, they never saw a temple like he saw restored. Oh, they did see a temple restored. Under Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple was restored, but it wasn't as grand and glorious as Solomon's temple. It certainly wasn't the kind of scope that Ezekiel saw in his vision. That temple too was destroyed. It was rebuilt by the Herods into a magnificent structure, but even that didn't come close to what Ezekiel saw this temple with a river of life coming out of it. But then another prophet came on the scene, the Son of God, Jesus from Nazareth. And he looked at people and he said, if you 
if you tear down this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. And they just looked at him and said, it took years to build the temple. How can you rebuild a temple in three days? And then John in his gospel, who records those words, said, but of course he was talking about the temple of his body. The temple of his body. And that is what you and I are part of. You and I are part of this new temple that Jesus has built through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We are in fact called living stones that are being built into this new temple. God has chosen us by his mercy and his grace and is building us together into this great house. And then Jesus looks at his people and he says, if you believe in me, a river of living water will flow out of you. And so the mission of the church in the world is to see the life-giving power of Jesus flow out to the whole world. That's why God has formed us together, to be a people together, living stones built together, exile people. Now, Peter, who heard Jesus say those words, picks up on that. Let's look at, at the way he describes it. First Peter chapter 1 verse 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, people of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace to you. Look at this. Peter uses exile language to speak to Christians who are scattered, part of the diaspora, the scattering of believers across, in this case, the Mediterranean world. And he says, you are exile people. You see, every Christian has a sense that they are part of something, but they also have in them something of a sense that we are not home yet, that we are exiles, that while we are in a certain way at home, there is another home, another citizenship that we're part of that we long for. We long for the heavenly Jerusalem. We know we're not home yet. We're part of a dispersed people in the world. And then Peter goes on to describe what that's like for us in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Coming to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious... Chapter 2, now verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, those who don't believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word and this is what they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have 
received mercy. I'm going to keep reading a little bit here. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify, glorify God on the day of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Now, friends, this remarkable passage is one we will refer to many times over the next several weeks. But what God has done is resurrect a people for his own possession through Jesus Christ. And he calls you living stones that he's building together into his house. And out of that house will flow a river of life which turns a dead world alive. Everything will live where the river goes. And this love and life of Jesus Christ is the hope of a dead world. And you and I are exiles in it. We are sojourners in it. We are on a journey, and we're on this journey together. And as we do it, as we go into the world, as dispersed people into the world, as we gather in worship and we disperse into the world, God places us in the world so that his river of life can flow through us to this world which is in desperate need of his mercy and grace. So we've summed up this mission statement this way. I want to put it up on the screen and I want to read it for you and then we'll just read it together. We are here to bring the transforming life and love of Jesus to our members, neighbors, and the nations in every generation through the gospel in word deed and sign. Let's read it aloud together. To bring the transforming life and love of Jesus to our members, neighbors, and the nations in every generation through the gospel in word, deed, and sign. So that's critical for us to get. This is the language we'll use to describe our mission and the values that we have, the how we do it. Now there's a couple of whys behind the what and the how. And we need to remember what those are. We are aware that the gospel alone changes people. And how many of the people in the world need a savior? Well, the answer is all of them. That's why Jesus gave us the great commission to go and preach the gospel everywhere. Everyone we know, everywhere we go to share the good news of Jesus with people. But secondly, we've just finished this series called Remember the Church. And you'll recall that Jesus said part of his saving mission was not just to capture the hearts of isolated individuals, but to build them together into this community he called his people. He said, I will build my church. And so every person needs the Savior, and every person needs a church to call home. And that's why from the very beginning, if you go back to the very founding of this church and you watch how it's expanded in its mission, you will find the story, this double-threaded double story, this great narrative that's been written here that this church exists to evangelistically tell this city, this region, our world, the good news of Jesus, that's number one, and number two, to plant churches locally, regionally, and all over the world. So those two things lie behind what we're trying to do. Those are unchanging realities. This church exists to share the good news of Jesus with the whole world and to plant churches because everyone needs Jesus and everyone needs a great church to call home. But the way this works out is in this series of relationships, three critical relationships 
that Peter outlines for us in this passage. I'm going to take them in reverse order. So here's the first one. The first relationship is our relationship to the world in mission and witness. The second is our relationship to one another in community. And the third is our relationship to God in worship. So look at the first relationship. Our relationship to the world in witness. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He goes on to say here in verse 11, as sojourners and exile people, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter talks about the way that witness happens in terms of both words and deeds. And he says it's necessary that exile people have both. You proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into light. Every single person in here who calls himself or herself a Christian has a story of the deeds of God in your life that brought you from death to life. You have that narrative. It may have been a sudden thunderclap conversion. It may have been the halogen bulb coming on. Or it may have been the dimmer switch slowly and surely bringing you into the kingdom of light. But whatever your story is, it's your story to tell, and it's the mighty deeds of God in your life. But those are your words, that's your story. But then there are your deeds. The way in which a church dwells as an exile people in a place in order to serve them. He says here in verse 16 of the same chapter, live as people who are free, Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So our life in the world has a posture of service. Let's talk about that posture of the church in the world. Exile people, sojourning people in the world. How do we relate to the world in witness? Well, the way the church typically relates in the world today, I've watched seen some phenomenon of the way in which people think about the way we relate in the world. I'll give you three words. The first one is is domination. Domination. Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, back uh, Nashville way, there was a meeting that a local Christian leader was at, not a pastor, but a well-known Christian leader, and uh, he was videotaped harassing people, haranguing people, And his attitude came across this way. This is an exact quote. He's yelling at people, and he's yelling at them as they're driving away, saying, we know who you are, we know where you live, and we will find you. That was a wonderful moment for the gospel in Nashville, Tennessee. (laughs) Now, what's behind that kind of anger, that kind of agitation? Well, one of the things that has motivated Christians for several years now has been an attitude that the church is here to take over. We're here to dominate the culture. So there's a very aggressive 
interior posture and attitude towards the world. Don't you know how hostile the world is? You've got to fight back. You've got to push back. You've got to stand up. You've got to take a stand. We've got to beat that back. And so when you do that, you begin to view your neighbors not as people to be one, but as enemies to be overthrown. So there's this attitude of domination. Of course, for other people, there's an attitude of capitulation. Capitulation. Surrender. So the surrender attitude is just this. It's too great. It's just overwhelming. This, everything has changed. The church is under threat. We just need to, we got we to gotta make sure that we hold on to, to our values. We got to come back over here and, you know, kind of form a holy huddle. Uh, us four and no more. Um, we're we're going we're gonna to preserve it. We're going to hide out over here and we're going to be the frozen chosen and hopefully the rapture is Tuesday. We got to get out of here. So there's just kind of a surrender. It's just, it's just hopeless. we got to preserve everything. And there's this kind of neo-Amish retreatism back into, into, into behind our, our high walls that we build up. There's a third approach, which is imitation. It's as though the people of Israel had, had decided in their exile and their sojourn in Babylon to say, Oh, it's no Babylon is great. For who needs Hebrew? Bacon is wonderful. Bacon with everything. <laughs> Let's just go with it. Babylonian diets for everybody. No distinction at all. Just, and so there's an imitation of the world. And this kind of idea that if the church could just be more like the world, we'll be able to, we'll, we'll, we'll go along to get along and they'll leave us alone. And so you find Christians all over the place, surrendering to and conforming to an ethic in our society, whether it has to do with greed or sexuality or anything else that is the value of the society rather than a value of the kingdom. So there's domination, and there's capitulation, and there's imitation. Now all three of those, interestingly, have actually within them the seed of a truth. An impulse that is right. I mean, after all, the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's true. Amen for that day. But that is not going to come about through our military and economic and political intrigue. It will come about when Christ splits the skies and comes back with his holy angels and subdues all his enemies under his feet. That's what he does, not what we do. He's not looking at us and saying, take over. He's saying, in the immortal words of Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. <laughs> All right. There's the, there's the, there is a truth to say you do have to preserve Christian culture and values. You, we have certain ways of doing things. And, and those values and those ways of doing things are always being assaulted by the enemy of, of your soul. You do have to preserve certain ways of doing things. That's a good impulse. But that isn't to be done away from the world. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when I wrote you not to associate with any immoral people, I did not mean the immoral people of the world because then you'd have to leave the world. He said, I meant not to associate with any so-called Christian who was immoral. That's what I was telling you. Don't leave the world. Jesus has prayed for us to be in the world, but not of the world. We're not to be a people of domination. We're not supposed to be a people of imitation. We're not supposed to be a people of capitulation. We're supposed to be the people with some insulation who believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ who comes. That's the answer to all of these things. 
Jesus is the incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the impulse to imitation is actually got its kernel of truth as well. Jesus comes on the scene and he is like everyone else. He is just, Jesus comes, Jesus did not float around off the, you know, three feet off the ground. He cried as a baby. He needed to be fed. He needed to be held. Jesus wasn't running around when he was nine years old doing miracles. Mary never stepped out and said, hey, hey, get in off the lake. Stop walking around out there. Stop dropping your friends and raising them from the dead. Stop showing off. That's enough of that. I made dinner. You don't have to multiply the loaves. None of that ever happened. He was just like everyone else. And yet, while he was just like everyone else, he was completely different than everyone else. And you get an insight into him when he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, you will find rest for your souls because, and he describes the posture of his heart, I am meek and lowly of heart. Meek and lowly are not two words that typically are used to describe the evangelical church in America today. But the incarnate Son of God, what does God look like? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Meekness and lowliness. And that's why we have to be in the world as witness. And it has to do with both our words and our deeds. That's why something like serve the city is so important. But it's individually as well. The way we conduct ourselves at work. Jesus, my friends, made good chairs. And whatever your work is, you do it well as unto the Lord. And then he says when people are hostile towards you about your faith, there's something undeniable about you. You love people when no one else loves them. You serve people no one else will serve. You sacrifice what no one else will sacrifice. There is something different about you. You see, the ancient Romans hated the Christians. And they accused them of being atheists because they didn't worship Caesar. They didn't worship their gods. The charge against the early Christians was that they were atheists because they couldn't point to an image that said, here's our God. They couldn't point to a temple that said, here's our temple, because they were the temple. And the river of life was flowing out of them, and it changed the world. When Paul was preaching in the ancient world, there were crosses all over the Roman world. 300 years later, when Augustine was preaching in the same part of the world in North Africa, there were crosses all over the world but the difference is this when Paul was preaching there were people hanging on those crosses and when Augustine began preaching 300 years later those crosses were on the tops of buildings all over the world why how did that happen how did a symbol of shame become a symbol of hope and shelter for the whole world the power of the gospel a river of life that was flowing through the ancient church and everything will live where the river goes but there's also a relationship that we have to one another in community. In 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 6, Peter says this, You yourselves are living stones being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Living stones. Now notice he doesn't say living bricks. Bricks all look the same. Hey, look around. You all look different from each other. Bricks are all the same, and they stack really nicely. Stones, oh no, stones are all different. Bricks are made by men. 
by humans. Stones are made by God. And God calls you not a living brick where you, he just doesn't stack us all neatly together. You all don't stack neatly together. You don't. Last night in the service, there were people showing up with Alabama shirts on and other people showing up with Florida shirts on. And I saw them worship together. This is the gospel of Jesus at work in the lives of his people. That's an amazing, that's an astonishing thing. There were people with Florida State shirts on who found themselves comforted in the grace and hope of the Almighty. It was their only hope in life and in death. Is, is, right, okay, I better not go down that road, had I? Because then we could have to start talking about Miami and, oh, okay. <laughs> living stones. We're all different. And what's God doing? He's taking us as living stones and he's joining us together into a house. We are shaped differently. And yet God joins us together. What does the church look like? The church isn't just one color. We have Portuguese and Spanish translation of these services going on right now again this morning. Thank God for that translation ministry going on. It's going on online. The church is Brazilian. The church is Latino. The church, the church is full of Anglos. The church is so diverse. It's so different. The gospel has reached as far as people from Tennessee and engaged them in Jesus Christ. The gospel joins people together. And this means we have a relationship to one another and we care. We care for one another. And then lastly, we have this relationship to God in worship. Look at chapter 2. He says in verse, verse 5, you're being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let me put it to you this way. Every person in here who is a Christian is a priest. Welcome to the priesthood. You have a robe which has been placed on you. You have blood which has been sprinkled on you. You have oil which has been applied to you. You are a priest. When Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn. That was so you, every single one of you who would recognize that you are a priest, can now come into the Holy of Holies. Jesus didn't die so you could go to heaven when you die. He died so you could go to heaven every day. You and I are priestly people who are called into the Holy of Holies, and there we offer up spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices. You did that already somewhat this morning. It says we offer up our praise and our thanks to God. We offer up our tithes and our offerings. We offer our bodies in service to God. We offer up, listen to this, the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. Sometimes our spiritual sacrifices are tears. You may have come this morning full of praise, full of thanks, or you may have come this morning full of grief and heaviness, and you wonder if God understands where you're living right now and the pain and the suffering you're enduring. And all you can offer to God is not a shout of praise, but the tears that go down your cheeks. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. Your repentance, Lord, help me. You know I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. That's worship. That's worship just as much as dancing in the aisles. You are priestly people. And so we have this relationship to the world that we're called to love. And it's an uncomfortable relationship. Look, Jeremiah, one of the other prophets of the exile, was there in telling the people in Babylon this. Everybody has Jeremiah 29 in their fridge. I know the plans that I have for you, plans to give you a future and a hope. You know, everybody's got that verse. Everybody loves that verse. 
But that verse is right around this verse. God told Jeremiah, tell the people, don't listen to those prophets who tell you this exile thing is going to wrap up real soon. Don't listen to them. They're telling you a false, a falsehood. No, here's the deal. I want you to live in Babylon. I want you to plant gardens and build houses. And I want you to seek the good of Babylon. Do you know how hard it was for them to hear that word? The pastor said to the people who had just seen their, their temple destroyed and their, their king and his sons put to death, who had seen their families drug across that ancient Near Eastern world and resettled in a city where they didn't speak the same language. It was a total disaster of the most monumental proportions. And this pastor comes on the scene, this pastor Jeremiah, and he says, here's what the Lord says, I want you to seek the good of the people who did that to you. That's the kind of stuff that gets pastors fired, let me tell you. He said, Jeremiah, what? We're supposed to seek the good? Yes, you're going to be here a while. Seek the good of the city where you live, because if they're blessing, you're going to be blessed. Do you know what happened as a result? There was a guy there named Daniel. Daniel was there. And Daniel was at Hogwarts. <laughs> he was. He was at Hogwarts. And, 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 and yet... He interpreted the dream of a king named Nebuchadnezzar, and it saved the life of all the other wizards. Do you think Daniel was over there at Babylon, Babylon's Hogwarts school going, I don't believe in all you wizards. I don't believe, you guys are into witchcraft. Dude. You know what Deuteronomy says about witchcraft? You're all going to burn in hell. No, he said, well, here I am. And he interpreted the dream, and it saved their lives. And then something else happened. Nebuchadnezzar became a believer. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, became a believer. My friends, this is the wonder of your witness in the world. This is the power of our community together. This is the joy of being priestly people who worship God and live for him. And the world, this world, this city is waiting for you to be those people in this place. Because everything will live where the river goes. And the reason that's true is because God has bestowed his love upon us. A love that is unchanging and will not let us go. There was a prophet named Hosea. I'm going to talk to you about him in closing here for just this, this last minute. Hosea had a wife whose name was Gomer. That should have been a sign of trouble right from day one. <laughs> Gomer. Gomer was an unfaithful wife. And she didn't just have affairs. She went out and became a prostitute. And she had children by her prostitution. And when Hosea, when Hosea saw the children, he looked at those children and he said this about those children. Not mine. Not mine. But then God came to Hosea and he said, you remember your wife who's prostituted herself? Well, she's just like my wife who's left me. And I want you to do something to show my people how much I love them and how my love will never let them go. I want you to go out and get her. Go get your wife and bring her home and love her again. And he went and got her and he brought her home. And he loved her. And he looked at the children who he had named, he had named them, not mine, 
And he set his hand upon them and said, mine, mine, my people. And in this passage in 1 Peter 2, where Peter says, once you were not my people, but now you are my people, he was quoting Hosea. You and I are the sons and daughters of a rebel race, Adam and Eve's house. And God could have looked at us and said, not mine, not mine. But God never looked at us and said, not mine. He looked at us and he says, I have a love which will make you mine and make you mine forever. And he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. And that Savior poured out his love and his life into the world to save the likes of you and me. And God says to you who believe on him this morning, you're mine. You are my people. There's a whole lot of people who don't yet know that they could be the people of God. And he's sending us to those people. With the love, with the love that says, mine. The everlasting love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, have mercy on us. Remind us that this is the love that will never let us go. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's put the mission statement up on the screen. We're going to read it aloud together one more time as we go today. Would you read it with me? To bring the transforming life and love of Jesus to our members, neighbors, and the nations in every generation through the power of the gospel in word, deed, and sign. And all God's people said, amen. amen.